0: We should be making common cause with the health sector. We should be thinking of each other as being able to help each other.
1: We have an opportunity here with COVID. We have an opportunity to try and find a kernel of good in all of this sadness.
2: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Reflecting Value, where we explore the big questions relating to cultural value in a reflective space. In this episode, we're asking the question, What is the specific value of culture in improving health and well-being outcomes? We'll reflect on how and why a dance programme leads to fall reduction for older people, what it is about a music programme that decreases postnatal depression in new mums, and how everyday creativity can support older people living in care homes during a global pandemic. Join me as I speak to this episode's guests who are trying to address these very questions.
3: around the back as well, break those fingers up and take that rub up one arm and I'd like you to imagine that you're painting your arm so I want you to make sure that every single part of your arm is totally covered in paint, there's no bits that you've missed, even these bits under here.
2: I'm watching dance practitioner Charlotte Haddon lead a dance workshop from her living room for Dance to Health an ESOP programme that looks to reduce older people's falls through creative dance. I watched a few of these videos when doing research for this podcast episode and found myself joining in with the activities. With working from home, I felt glued to my desk at times, but having the opportunity to take a moment to check in with myself through these exercises felt good. I spoke to Tim Yoss, CEO of ESOP. Tim and his team have been developing a program which seeks to understand the active ingredients in culture and health programs. In other words, how and why arts and culture make a difference when it comes to health and well-being.
3: relax those hands down We're
2: just going do some circles of our shoulders Okay, so I'm really interested in this kind of active ingredients element that you're talking about and the sort of work you've done around it. So why do you think it's important to centre planning and evaluation around this idea of active ingredients?
0: A lot of my time has been given up to developing our networks in health. I must say, I've made some lovely friends in health. The people that I've got to know in the NHS, I think, are fantastic. So I'm always trying to find ways in which I can open up conversations with health people. I just thought, they're used to using the phrase active ingredients. Why don't I adopt it and apply it to artistic active ingredients?
2: So where did this idea of active ingredients come from?
0: There's actually a research paper on whether dance reduced older people's falls. And the particular dance that was being talked about was folk dancing and ballroom styles. We've got to know the researcher. Her name's Daphne Merham. She studied uh, people living in 23 retirement villages in Sydney. And, I mean, she was, I think, hoping that the result would be that ballroom and folk styles would reduce people's falls. But the answer was no, it does not reduce people's falls. But Dance to Health, OK, we've not done a randomised control trial yet, but we've had a proper evaluation done by Sheffield Hallam University. And they concluded that Dance to Health reduces falls by 58%. 58%. So you then begin to ask the question, what is it about Dance to Health? What's the dance practice there which is enabling you to reduce falls by 58%? Whereas Daphne was not able to show any improvement using folk and ballroom styles.
2: So what would you say are the active ingredients in Dance to Health?
0: I think there are two... Really important elements to this. One is we have asked all our dance artists to get the falls prevention exercise qualification. And we are there for having dance artists who have been trained in falls prevention exercise. And we then, alongside that, have an extra bit of the training where they're taught how to smuggle these falls prevention exercises into creative dance. And that's the other thing it's creative dance. So if you, Robin, came along to a Dance to Health session, you would not see standard activity, you know, standard steps like tango or, you know, English folk dance or anything like that. You would see the dance artists working with the older people, starting with everyday movements like stretching up to bring something down from a shelf. And then out of that, you begin to construct creative dance. And because of the training that the dance artists have had, they will be able to make sure that they're being true to the falls prevention exercise. So you go along to a session as maybe as a dance artist and you would see creative dance. You go along there as a falls prevention professional and you will say, oh, wow, all the elements of the evidence based falls prevention exercise are there.
2: Of course, understanding the complexity surrounding the value of a creative process is no simple task, but perhaps this approach offers a new opportunity to learn how and why this dance programme has led to such positive outcomes when it comes to full reduction. So what comes next? Back to Tim.
0: I get a lot of pushback in the arts world if I start talking about randomised control trials. But if we have found that there is an arts intervention that addresses a major health problem in a way that's more effective than current NHS provision, which is what we have found with Dance to Health, then there's a very strong case for an RCT. And let's not forget, an RCT just looks at the practice from a health point of view. Are we getting the health results? And part of this conversation that we're having is actually saying, that's only part of it. We need to look at it from an artistic point of view. What's the artistic practice? What are the active ingredients? What are the artistic outcomes? The RCT is not going to look at that. It's just a particular slice, if you like, through the project, through the program, which determines whether it's something that should be taken up by the NHS or not. Part of what I'm trying to achieve through the Active Ingredients Project is to get people to start talking about artistic outcomes, because that doesn't really happen.
2: Talking to Tim, it seems as if there is a challenging balancing act between conveying and communicating value that shows health impacts, while still centralising the cultural experiences and processes underpinning them. So how can we convey the right type of evidence when bridging the gap between culture
4: and health? So we are aware that we're stepping into a scientific world where we need evidence and backing to be prioritised. This is
2: Hannah Dye from Breathe Arts Health Research. I spoke to Hannah about how they balance evidencing their practice and shining a light on their process. Breathe's programmes have been embedded within different healthcare settings for over a decade, and they've built up an impressive portfolio of research and evaluation to support their claim that their programmes have significant value when it comes to addressing health and wellbeing needs. I asked Hannah what Breathe's drive was for developing such a strong ethos surrounding research and evaluation. Um, I'm just really interested in the sort of the drive as um, an organisation to build this evidence base.
4: So I think that there are so many ways that the arts is beneficial emotionally, socially, physically, mentally, um, and it's really a way of bringing people together. So there's a lot we already know from our participants, whether they're patients, NHS staff. We do a lot for staff well-being even so even more so now than ever before Um, and so we know we know those benefits from our from our participants can be very very positive for all of those reasons um I think the drive drive behind what we do is of course that it's it is really about our participants and improving emotional um sorry and improving well-being or particular physical um or clinical outcomes. But I think it's also about supporting an already stretched NHS. So we know from our work that it can often relieve pressures. So what we quite often do is try and identify a challenge or a gap within services or a service that's particularly stretched. So it's really about how the arts and the experience of patients, participants, can relieve those those unbelievable demands a very very simple example of that is we have resident musicians that play within hospital wards and we know from nhs staff feedback um, that patients often sleep better as a result of that live music experience and can also on occasion need less pain relief so that's a really clear example of less pressure on on a on a clinical need, both within medication and on staff capacity. So off the back of that question,
2: I'm kind of because you've, you've said about how uh, you've kind of had these partnerships for sort of 10 years. And what I'm really interested in is how your different programmes um, have developed or evolved um, as a result of the learning that comes out of research and evaluation.
4: Yeah, so one of our key programmes currently is Melodies for Mums. So it's a 10-week singing programme for women and their baby. And it's specifically designed for women that might be experiencing postnatal depression. So it's very specifically based on research by Royal College of Music and Imperial College London that discovered that 10 weeks of singing specifically can lead to a reduction of around 41% in symptoms with um, full postnatal depression. So we've reached about 200 women and their babies so far. And now we're part of a very exciting, large scale research project with King's College London that will again, continue to look at the benefits on mum and baby, but we'll look at particularly the scalability of that programme.
3: We didn't really need to talk about um, you know, the, the depressing kind of facts that we were all struggling. We just had this wonderful positive experience at the other end. And we sound really good. <laughs> we sound amazing, which was one of the revelations that lots of beginner singers, at, and it's just so uplifting. But they're real community songs about happiness and joy, and I feel that when I sing them. I feel really special and really good. And um, I'm just really glad that I went there and have tried to find different things that made me feel really good. And it's brought me and Cara closer. We're able to laugh and sing. And we have much more happy moments. And I can't say specifically that it's Melodies for Mums, but it's the feeling of... that, That was one of the first places where I started to really enjoy spending time with my baby and doing things for us together and that's been something that I will take with me from the class and forever.
2: Through rigorous research and evaluation Breathe has been able to showcase the benefits of Melodies for Mums for their participants and their involvement in the Shaper project at King's College London will enable them to further understand the intricacies of this programme. Do we have the balance right at the moment with this sort of tip towards outcome or do we need to think about the process a bit more?
4: So what we do often at Breathe is we pilot, we test and we then get a model that we feel works and then we look at scaling it up so we don't run ahead, ahead of ourselves too quickly and Melodies for Mums is a really good example of that. It's, it's a challenging thing isn't it in this sector of all of these different worlds and languages coming together so that research collaboration, I think, is it's amazing for us to be part of that and having those in-depth conversations about the intricacies of a programme process um, and how it's delivered and why it's delivered that way. Because that knowing that within a research realm will allow us to, to look at scalability. But I think that can often be lost. I do think the intricacies of a process are really really important to get to the outcome
2: we've now heard from two organizations who have developed programs for specific health or well-being needs but what about the role that cultural experiences can play in our everyday lives and how does this relate to health and well-being (laughs) i really do like talking about this (laughs) Dr. Kate Dupuy, a Schlegel Innovation Leader in Arts and Ageing at Sheridan College, Ontario. I spoke to Kate back in November of last year about this very question. It's really difficult for me to see what the specific value of arts and culture is over another um, activity, say bingo or. Uh, sitting and having a cup of tea.
1: Always bingo.
2: Yeah, always bingo. (laughs) So I guess my kind of question would be, um, what do you think is the specific value of the arts and culture? And how do you know this is the case?
1: Well, I think it's, it's tapping into something that's very deep in all of us. We know that one of the earliest ways that we communicated was through the arts, was through spoken word, storytelling, you know, painting, singing. We didn't have... Uh, Written language, so we had oral language. We would use song to communicate. We know that singing is one of the earliest ways that moms and babies and dads, parents communicate with their babies is through song. I think that there's just something very inherent in our human nature. A lot of the times when you're creating or you're watching something being created, you're in a group and you're all together. And we, again, we have very deep seated inside our brains. We have a desire to be with people who like the things that we like. And so I often think of, you know, when you go and you sit down in the theater and the curtain rises, there's a little gasp of anticipation and everyone is getting ooh, sort of those little shivers and what are we going to see and how's it going to go? And and I think there's that sort of sense of wonder and newness with the art and culture that you're always learning something new. You're expressing yourself in a new way that is really something unique and just really beautiful to see.
2: I think that's really interesting and it's something that I'm um, definitely finding in the research that I'm doing is that a lot of the sort of things that fall under culture health and well-being it's kind of like oh they'll take part for 10 weeks and then that's the end of it. It's just a pilot. We're not going to, we don't have the funding to continue because we need to prove it works in order to get the funding for it to continue. And I feel as if we miss a lot of this kind of, um, the role of everyday creativity and contributing to our health and well Um And so I wonder whether there's sort of, in terms of older adults, whether there's any work or anything you've been involved in that looks more at that kind of everyday creativity.
1: So we did a really interesting project with one of our retirement homes in Ontario And we looked at about 130 people who were moving into the home for the very first time. And the home was piloting a new Getting to Know You form. So the form, the purpose of the form was not for me as a researcher. It was for the team members to get to know the resident, get to know their likes, dislikes, what time do you like to get up in the morning, what type of, you know, do you like to have coffee in the morning, just to try and provide a a more person-centered approach to the care in the home. And I had heard about this form and I said, you know, would I be able to get uh, access to it? So we went through ethics and we, of course, you know, got the permission of people. And so what I did was I was able to look at this form. And the interesting thing it did is it asked residents, what would people say you're good at? And then what are you interested in taking part in here at your new home? Because we have, you know, at the time in person, of course, at different times, a a wide range of recreation and leisure activities um, available to you. And so what I found that was so interesting is that you if you ask people sort of what type of activities they wanted to do, very few of them mentioned things that we would think of as sort of arts and culture, right? Painting, dancing, pottery. That wasn't really high on the list. It was only in about 12% of the cases would we see that. But if you looked at what people are good at, I'm really good at baking. I'm the expert knitter. I've been a quilter my whole life. Here are my quilts. Um, woodworking working on your car or your vehicles. So all things that require creativity and innovation and trying things, maybe it doesn't work out the first time, you have to go back, you know, these types of everyday activities that are actually inherently extremely creative. But this is an example I would think of a research clinician partnership because I did not create the form. I did not have any sort of preconceived notions of what the form would tell me. I simply took a form that was originally being used for clinical purposes and looked at it from a different perspective and so was able to bring my scientist lens to the data and to really start to tap into people are really creative and what else can we provide to them at the home so of course we have the recreation calendar which we share and it says you know nine o'clock Or 10 a.m. music time. But there's so much else happening, especially in retirement and long term care homes, that is off the calendar and off the grid. So things like people wanting to help fold the laundry or coming into the kitchen and helping with very safe tasks like preparing veggies, you know, cutting up veggies or setting the tables, for example. So all of these things sort of tap into your natural desire to do things and create things. Um, And maybe what you're creating is a beautiful tablescape for dinner. Maybe you like to fold the napkin in a fancy way and put that out. And when the person sits down in the large dining room, they're going to see that and it's going to bring a smile to their face. So this sort of everyday creativity, everyday tapping into what you're good at, what you like to do. I think those data possibly are out there. We, we just need to have an opportunity to search for them.
2: Kate raises a very important point here about how researchers can step into the everyday lives of people to understand more about what culture means to them. Of course, COVID has brought with it some of the toughest circumstances for older people, with many shielding and unable to see friends and family. I asked Kate how her research has adapted in the face of COVID.
1: From our perspective in research, we've tried to be very mindful of timing. So we basically put everything on hold for five or six months. We said this is not the time. Some of our projects, we pivoted to doing things that were, you know, quick emergency responses to what's happening in the the neighborhood. So um, one of our team members at the center received a grant to study food insecurity during COVID to see what are are people, if they're not going out, if older adults are being told to shelter in place and not go out to the grocery store, maybe more than once every week or once every two weeks, do they have enough food? I mean, I think we moved to that sort of very, very quickly. What are basic things that people need to get through their days? What we're finding in our own center and with other colleagues that I've spoken to is everything now is taking so much more time. From a scientific perspective, there are a lot more ethical questions you have to work through. If you're never seeing a person and you can't give them a consent form and sit in front of them and go through it together, how do you do that? So I think there's it's the challenges for me have been around just time, trying to do everything virtually and have a lot of different workarounds. How do you store data? Very basic level. How do you store data? How do you upload data if you have research assistants in different parts of the province? How do they Connect with participants? How do they put data somewhere on a server that I can access that's secure? How do we download it? Just these little things that I would never have had to think of before because we were in person. We have an opportunity here with COVID, with the enforced separation, (laughs) the enforced movement to virtual and distance activities. We have an opportunity to try and find a kernel of good in all of this sadness. And We were very careful at the beginning of the pandemic. You know, we kept saying we want to be mindful of what people's experiences are and make sure not to try and move too quickly and move back into the research because that's not what people needed right now. But what I'm finding in my own work is people are really eager to get involved and they're really eager to try something new and different and connect, even if it's just over Zoom, to connect with new people. And so I think especially working within the arts and culture section and looking at how do the arts bring people together, we really have an opportunity here to change the sector moving forward. So I think there's an opportunity here. Obviously, while we're still in lockdown or going through our our waves of this pandemic, to, p- to pivot online, to try something new online. But I also think there's an opportunity to reach out to people who perhaps would never have had the opportunity to access arts and culture in this way. So people who can't pay $25 to go to the museum can now do a virtual tour on their phone. You know, people who can't get on the bus and go to my center twice a week to take part in a dance class, maybe they can find a ballet class they do online. So, I think it makes it a little bit more accessible for people. One thing we've been thinking about here in our own work is the, the, the issue of technology and equity of access, so not everyone has good technology. And I think a lot of arts and culture organisations went to Zoom, went to the internet right away. I think we need to take a step back and just go to the phone.
2: So, what can we take away from these conversations? We need to be mindful of the fact that understanding the specific value of arts and cultural programmes is complex, but research can help to support greater understanding of active ingredients, the artistic process, and the significance of programmes for those taking part. But on the flip side, are we in danger of over-medicalising programmes if we break them down to their constituent parts? Is the value we see above and beyond this? I think today's conversation is a good starting point for further reflection, And I'd be really interested to hear what you think going forwards. How do you or your organisation communicate and convey the specific value of programmes for the health and wellbeing of those taking part? And how have you adapted your research and evaluation in the face of COVID? How are you reflecting on how your processes may have changed? That's all from me. Thank you for listening to Reflecting Value, a podcast from the Centre for Cultural Value. To keep up to date on reflections from this episode and to hear how other people have answered these questions, search hashtag Reflecting value on Twitter.
1: And don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. See you next time!